Blog Talk Radio. Hello there. Welcome to Teach Me to Talk, the podcast. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist, and I'm so happy that you've joined me for today's show. We haven't had a show for the past couple of weeks, and so I want to give you a little bit of uh, information about that. I'm getting all kinds of phone calls from people who are saying, where is my certificate for a course that they've taken or just haven't um, gotten a response back from a question they've submitted on the site. Let me tell you a little bit about what's going on in my life. We are moving or have moved our offices about an hour and a half away from our previous location, and now we're in the process of moving ourselves to that new location, and we're renovating, oh gosh, I'm so excited about this, um, a 100-year-old craftsman-style house. And initially, uh, Johnny and I thought it was going to take just, oh gosh, six or eight weeks. And I don't know if you are a fan of HGTV shows like I am, and Boy, sometimes I'll hear those timelines and hear some kind of horror stories. And we haven't had a horror story, but everything is taking, you know, costing twice as much and taking three times longer than we thought it would be. So things have been a little bit slower pace than we've wanted. So, uh, and our systems are super, super challenged at this point. So if you are waiting on a certificate or need something else from me, give us a call or email me again. And we will try to get that to you as quickly as possible. But hopefully the show is back up and running. And I'm so excited about today's topic. We are going to be discussing something that's so important. If you are a pediatric speech-language pathologist like me or another kind of therapist who works in early intervention, and especially if you are a parent, many, many times we look at our little friends and our children with language delays, and if there are other things going on or other little quirks that we notice, we start to kind of think, hmm, is this just late talking or could this be something else? Now, I've spent the last few months looking at characteristics or behaviors that separate late talking from other kinds of speech language delays and disorders. And so if you've not read some of those articles, pop on teachmetotalk.com and look at that series of posts. I think I have two more to go with that. Today we're taking a little different angle with it. We're looking at how do we separate kids with autism from other kinds of speech language delays and disorders. And this is really, really, really important because many, many times parents, when they initially start to be concerned about their child, the only thing that they really notice is, gosh, you know, he's 18 months and I haven't heard any words, or he's two and he's still not talking, or he just has a handful of words, or maybe he talks a little bit, but it's not like other uh, little friends or other, other people's children that you're seeing. And so we really need some real life practical ways that we can start to separate and differentiate and know, gosh, is this just like talking or could this be something else? And today we're looking at autism because in April, which is World Autism Awareness Month, and I may have botched the title on that, but you get my you get my point, where the month of April, uh, we look at highlighting the importance of early identification or children who are struggling with the, the issues that our little friends with autism have. And so we've, we've collectively spent a whole month doing that. And I meant to do this show in April, but it's only May 2nd. So I'm only two days behind. And with the, the, how crazy my life has been, that's actually pretty good. But I did want to go ahead and do this show because I do think it's really, really important. Now, this information is not just from me. It's evidence-based, meaning that it's based on research, and my reference here is actually the American Speech and Hearing Association's practice portal. Now, if you are a speech pathologist, you are probably very familiar with ASHA because that's our credentialing body where we, um, as a, a profession, are certified that we have received our master's degrees and that we have spent nine months under the direction of an experienced speech-language pathologist, and we are good to go after that point. We uh, receive our 
CFCs or our Certificate of Clinical Competence. And one of the benefits of being an ASHA member is access to this fantastic body of information included in the practice portal. And so if you've not accessed that before and you're an SLP, take a look at that because you can go to that website and enter or that portion of the website and enter any diagnosis and just get all kinds of information about diagnostics for that intervention, get the latest evidence-based practice um, information for you as you are making decisions about a child, what should I be working on, what should I not worry about, what does the research say is effective and ineffective. And so that's where this information is from today. So again, it so lines up with what my, you know, 23, 24, how many ever years it is now, practice has <laughs> taught me. And so I love it when you find research that really, really supports what you already know. But I really wanted to share that this isn't just something that I'm coming up with, even from my own experience, but it's really, really supported by research. So let's look at this. Seven characteristics that differentiate autism from other developmental language delays and disorders. And let me just go ahead and say, this information, I'm going to be as succinct as I possibly can, and if you're a fan of this show, that may leave you laughing out loud because I can go on and on and on. I could probably do a show <laughs> or a series of shows <laughs> for each one of these seven things, but we're not going to do that today. I'm reining it in, and we're going to really, really stay pretty um, focused and, and I'm just summarizing these things. But if you want more information, this section of information is pulled from my course on DVD, Is It Autism? And I mentioned that it's on DVD because if you're not able to see this course live, you can certainly still get your continuing education credit by watching the course on DVD and then returning that, um, returning those forms and getting that credit. Um, and if you're another kind of therapist, you're thinking, well, I'm, I'm not a speech pathologist, but that sounds kind of cool. I'd like that information. Uh, you can certainly get your certificate of participation. And then depending on your licensure requirements in your particular state or um, agency or body, whatever you want to, association, whatever you want to think about, uh, many, many times you'll be able to still count this toward your annual requirements for continuing education because it's a course that's already approved through the American Speech and Hearing Association. So I wanted to get that out there. If you need more information about that course, pop on teachmetotalk.com or get on my mailing list, my email list, and you'll certainly get lots of information about that. All right, so let's move forward here. Seven characteristics that differentiate ASD from other developmental language delays and disorders. All right, so remember here what we're doing is we're taking a kid, all the kids that we're talking about here, we're not just really comparing um, kids with autism to, or, or kids who are at risk for autism or who have some red flags for autism compared to typically developing kids, we're pulling that out into another subset with we're looking at just late-talking kids or kids with language delays or disorders in general. And so, again, that's an important differentiation because some – and you have to really look at what your list when you are consuming research and when you are looking at – even doing a simple web search and you're really looking at – you know, are these signs of autism or are these characteristics of kids who are late talkers or kids with language delays? And you have to kind of see what, what kids are they comparing it to? Is it compared to typically developing kids? Is it compared to kids with other kinds of delays or differences in their development? And so today we're taking late talking or speech language delays in general versus a child with autism. And again, this is really, really important for therapists because you're not really going to see very many typically developing children <laughs> in your caseload, uh, you know, or even in your practice because a parent really, for kids who are truly typically developing, we don't see them because parents are not concerned about that. Those kids' languages coming in, they may have some other little concerns. You know, all of us are concerned about our children at one time or another with various things that come up. But as a speech pathologist, we really don't see uh, kids with typically developing communication skills. And so I like this information because it, it, 
is applicable to all kids on our caseload. So we're kind of taking all kids with language delays to start with, and then we're saying, what makes a kid really more at risk or more likely to get an autism diagnosis? And so, again, for any kind of therapist, you know, that's one of the things we do is differential diagnosis. Is it this? Is it that? Is it, what, could, what else could this be? Is this just like talking or a straight expressive language delay versus is there more going on? So let's look at these seven characteristics and talk about these. And again, this will not be a really in-depth review. <laughs> this is just to get you started and give you an initial kind of screening checklist. And I think this information is so important, particularly if you are newer to early intervention. And lots and lots of therapists email me and will say, you know, I'm making a switch to pediatrics or early intervention after I've been with school-age children or after I've been with geriatrics or after I've been in an adult rehab setting and I need some information, I need some help here. This is totally new to me. And I, if you've listened to the show before, you know that I've said many, many times, I think it's almost a separate profession <laughs> because treating toddlers is a niche population here and things are so different even compared to children who are kindergarten age. So this information is really, really specific to toddlers, and you'll understand that as we go on because so many of the age ranges that we're going to look at and talk about are in that birth to three developmental period. So let's start with the first one. What's the first thing that we might notice with the child that would lead us to look beyond language delay and think more about autism? And I started to say this before, and let me just go ahead and say it. This may be a little list that as a newer therapist or even an experienced therapist, and you're thinking, you know, there's got to be a better way here. I don't, I need a real set of criteria that I can count on, that I can know in the first visit or two when I'm with a child without doing a whole battery of tests and without sending him off right away for a, an additional team assessment. What are some things that I can look for in that first visit or two that might lead me to suspect something beyond like talking or language delay? So, the, and again, remember, this is based on cumulative research. So, ASHA has taken, like they, like they do with these other diagnoses, they look at the whole body of research and they've pulled out the seven things that really would lead us to look toward autism as an explanation for a child's difficulties with communication and not just that straight developmental language delay. So the first thing would be eye contact and eye gaze. Now those are two different things and let me really explain um, what would be different about these things. And we know what eye contact is. What's eye contact? That's when a kid looks at your face. He's looking right in your eyes. He's um, not just scanning, he doesn't just accidentally land on your eyes. <laughs> he knows that to communicate that one-on-one, face-to-face, looking at each other is something that he does frequently and consistently. And lots and lots of our little friends with autism have real problems with eye contact. It's fleeting, meaning that it's it's, you just occasionally notice that a child is looking into your eyes or it's very um, concentrated in that you don't get much eye contact unless you are doing one or two particular things that they really, really like or a kid may have eye contact only with his mom or dad and then everybody else who really kind of struggles with it and sometimes parents will say, oh, that's just because he's shy. He really won't look at anybody else in the eyes or really pay attention to anybody else that's not mom or dad. And that's a problem. That's a red flag. And so we want to be sure that we're looking at eye contact and realizing how essential that is for beginning communication. And let's just think about eye contact. Newborns make a lot of eye contact and especially when they start in that little 
uh, first little speech development phase at that six to eight week mark where they start to really coo and they're really watching their mother's faces. And lots of times children with autism or who are, are at risk for autism, you know, we don't know that when a child is in that infant developmental period. But a lot of times parents will go back and say, well, you know, even when he was really, really young, he never really looked at me. I never really felt like I got eye contact to the same qualitative uh, measure as I did with other ch- with some of our other children or as I noticed that another baby ha- has with his mom. So eye contact is super, super important. And again, sometimes with kids with autism, parents will say, no, now he really did that. It wasn't until he got to be almost a year old or nine months old or sometime in that first, say, 12 to 15 or 16 months do parents start to really think, hmm, he is not looking at me very much, or boy, we cannot get him settled down to really, really listen to us. And a lot of times parents will notice the listening part, but they don't really get that the child isn't really looking at them or watching them. So that's what eye contact is. Now, eye gaze is a little different. Eye gaze is when a child can follow someone else attempts to redirect his attention and usually that's with a point so let's say you were with a 10 or an 11 month old child or let's just go on and say a two-year-old and you are playing with them and something exciting or interesting is happening across the room and you want to get them to notice that too so what do you do you say look and you point and you make a pretty grand effort to redirect a child's attention, and he doesn't get it. He doesn't really break his concentration from what he's currently attending to. He doesn't, he, or he sort of look at you or briefly and then go right back to what he's doing. He doesn't acclimate or follow your point. He doesn't try to see what you want him to redirect his attention to. And that typically happens when children really start to follow that redirection from, um, and it could be from another kid or an adult, to look at something else. And, again, that's called joint attention. But that should happen between 9 and 12 months in a typically developing child. So if you have a kid who's 14 months, 18 months, 2 or 3 who's not really, really following your point, that's a big red flag. And, again, that's one of the characteristics that would differentiate autism versus another kind of language delay. So what if you're thinking, oh, well, my kid has apraxia, but but he doesn't follow my point either. See, that's what this list should do. It should really redirect your attention to, hmm, this could be more than just apraxia. And let me just mention that because yesterday I did an email about that, and if you are on my email list, you've got that with how often children with autism also have the diagnosis of apraxia. It's, it's a huge percentage of children, 63-point-something percent. So I don't have that right in front of me. But over half of kids with autism also have apraxia. And so a lot of parents will get the apraxia diagnosis first, and then they hang on to that diagnosis thinking this, is, this covers everything. This is why he's not paying attention. This is why he's not responding to his name. You know, and again, with this example, this is why he won't follow my uh, pointing with his eyes, with his eye gaze, why he's, you know, no, apraxia is a motor speech diagnosis. It just accounts for the talking part, for the expressive part. So that's, again, why this list is so important, because it helps us, even after a kid has gotten an initial diagnosis, if we still have some things that we're concerned about, that that the single label that he's gotten at the beginning doesn't quite cover all of the little problems that you're seeing, again, that's where a list like this can really, really be helpful. So eye contact and eye gaze. If a kid is having difficulty really, really looking at you and maintaining eye contact with you when you're trying to talk with him, especially when you're both interested in the same thing and he's clearly wanting something that he knows that you can give him, or when you are trying really hard to get him to look at something, and again, it could be something like, you know, the garbage truck outside, or there's an airplane in the sky, or even, you know, there's a ball, or someone new has come into the room, and you're pointing and saying, Dice home, see, there's Daisy, and you don't get any kind of real response from him, 
that would lead you to believe, gosh, this isn't just late talking. This isn't just about that part. Let me take a closer look at autism. All right, the second characteristic that might or that does differentiate autism from other developmental language delays and disorders, orienting to one's name. So what is that? Inconsistent responding to their own name. And, you know, I talk about this on the show all the time. Children start babies between four and six months, really start to look when someone calls their name, when they're typically developing. So if we have a child who's 12 months and is not doing that, so by the time they're the first birthday, if they are typically developing or just have an expressive language delay, they're still going to respond to their names. They're still going to look when you call them. You are not going to work super, super hard to get their attention. And it's a big red flag if you have any toddler over 12 months old, over that first birthday when they're not responding to their name. And as a therapist, when a parent tells you that, you should automatically lean toward looking at autism. Are there some other things that point to autism? Because this is one of the main um, behaviors that would lead us to start to question or explore if that's what's going on with that child. So orienting to his name, responding to his name, and kids, again, let me just say, typically developing toddlers will go through periods where they look, oh, he's a little bit stubborn or he's a little bit preoccupied or he's so busy and active that he's not responding to his name. But more often than not, most of the time when you call their names, they should be looking at you. They should be stopping <laughs> what they are doing. If you have a kid who's completely ignoring that, that's a red flag. And that certainly would lead you to believe, gosh, this is more than just a regular language delay or an expressive language delay. This is more about an overall developmental disorder rather than uh, late talking there. All right, so third characteristic here, and again, we're going through these pretty quickly, but I want you to be able to have this down and dirty list <laughs> that you can look to. And again, this would not give you an official diagnosis of autism. If you have a child even who has four or five of these concerns, I don't want you to ever think that that would be appropriate for you to think, well, that's it. It's official. He has he has autism. Let's, you know, that's that's what's going on here. That's not the purpose of this show. This is just a screening list so that you can use this information and think, boy, this kid needs to be assessed further. We've got to have some further evaluation here because I'm seeing some things that lead me to believe that this isn't just a language delay. There's something else going on here. So we've gotten the first two. Let's move on to the third one, pointing to or showing objects of interest. So what does that look like? You know, we talked about in the first characteristic, kids following your pointing so that means that you are doing the pointing. Now we're looking at that the child is able to point and to show you what he wants you to do or show you something that he wants you to pay attention to or you to notice or you to do things. Now that emerges in typically developing toddlers, again, usually in that 9 to 12 month period, but if we are not seeing it by 15 months, that's a big deal. So. As I've said over and over, if you have a two-year-old, a three-year-old who isn't pointing with their little index finger to show you something, let's say you go in the kitchen and he has, maybe he's pulled you in there, which is another really common thing that kids with autism do. But, and again, that's not necessarily a deficit. We're glad that they're trying to communicate in some way. But a lot of times kids with who are at risk for autism do a lot of leading, but they don't know what to do with a parent or an adult after they've led you to where they assumably want you to go. And so they get there, and then there's really nothing past that. That's kind of their only strategy that they can use. Typically, developing children might push or pull or lead you somewhere, and then they go beyond that to point to exactly what it is that they want, even if they're not talking. And this, would, this excludes words at this point. So, again, we're just talking about gestures here. So children who are 
doing everything they can to definitively let you know what it is that they want uh, using their little bodies. So a lot of times kids, too, will maybe reach towards something or in some way use their hands. I've seen children who don't point with their index fingers, but maybe they point with their thumbs or they use their whole hand or whatever. And that could be due to motor planning. It could be other kinds of muscle issues, you know, low muscle tone or high muscle tone. And you've really got to look at the kid to see that and know what that is. That's, you know, sort of hard to describe without looking at a specific child. But here I'm talking about, again, just that pointing and showing. And, and again, it might be that a child brings something. So let's say that he has broken a toy in his bedroom, that he thinks that you probably can make it better. <laughs> and that if he will just show you the toy, you know, it may not be that he's leading you there and then pointing once he gets there. It could be that he's bringing that to you. So he is showing you. It could be that let's say you are preoccupied with something else. Let's say that you are folding laundry and you were standing there at the dryer taking clothes out and a child who is exhibiting these kinds of gestures may come up and to get your attention again if he's not even talking yet it could just be that they're really tapping you on the leg or pulling your arm or doing something to get your attention and get you to look at what you wanted them to do and again take the word part out of this so you might have a kid with um, we mentioned apraxia before you might have a kid that just has even a receptive language delay he doesn't understand a lot of words that he hears but he knows how to initiate he knows how to get your attention he knows how to come to you and bring you things and sh and take you to things that he wants you to see so that interaction piece and that engagement piece along with gestures is fine. It's just that that kid with a receptive language delay doesn't understand necessarily what words mean, but he knows really to use another person to help him accomplish what he wants to accomplish. And so see here what we're really talking about, again, is that initiating piece and the gesture piece. And so kids with autism have difficulty with both of those things, with taking that first step to let other people know what they want and being really purposeful and intentional, that's the showing part. And certainly the pointing is the nonverbal communication part. So that, that sort of hits on two characteristics of autism or two deficits that children with autism really, really have difficulty with. And again, those kinds of behaviors that we're talking about pointing, showing, and the other two that we've done, responding to your own name and eye contact and eye gaze, these are all things that should be occurring by 12 months. So when we see a child, even at 16 months, 18 months, which is still pretty, pretty young, if they're still not doing those things, we know that they're not typically developing. And again, even if we know that there's a language delay, it would still lead us to suspect something beyond that because these are things that even kids that have other kinds of language delays are doing. Uh, even a kid with a cognitive delay, like a child with Down syndrome or a child with another kind of uh, genetic diagnosis may still not be talking yet and not understand very many words yet, but they know they're starting to use some gestures and that they, they know how to engage you. They know that they need to interact with you and that they know that they need you to do, do something for them. So that, again, that's the difference here. All right, the fourth area or characteristic that would differentiate autism from another kind of a developmental language delay or disorder would be pretend play. Now, I've done show after show after show <laughs> about how important play is and about all the things that we look for in play skill development and why this matters. And let me just use a little couple of lines to talk about the importance of pretend play and how that really is linked with language development. Children, first of all, with play have to understand how to use familiar objects, and that really is very obvious by about 15 months old. So kids who see a hairbrush and start to brush their hair, or kids who know, look at shoes and try to put them on their feet, 
or kids who will take a car and roll it across the room and then, uh, you know, roll the ball, throw the ball, hammer with the hammer with a ball and hammer toy. They just understand how familiar objects and toys are used. That's the foundation, but that's still not pretending. But let me just say, using familiar objects and toys precedes pretend play. So that's the first part. This this is the skill, this bump up from that is what we're really, really looking at. And again, this is how kids know to use one object to represent another object that's not present or to um, enact a familiar routine without having all of the really specific pieces. So they're becoming symbolic. They're playing. They are imagining and pretending. So this would be that a kid uh, has a baby doll and they're not just looking at the baby doll's eyelashes or ripping the clothes off. You know, that's not really pretending. Pretending would be what? It's that they're giving the baby doll a drink. So there's a cup or a bottle, or sometimes a kid will even use their little hand. And that's when you know, oh, my goodness, you know, that really is representational play. You know, there's no cup there, but you see them put a little fist up to that baby doll's mouth, and you may even hear them do something like a little, you know, little sound effect there. And you think, oh, my goodness, he's pretending. So that's what pretending is, and it's that step up. It's that using uh, you know, something isn't present or using one object to represent another object. Now, this really should emerge in typically developing kids by about 18 months. But if we don't see it by 24 months, we know that that's a big red flag. And that's what lots of autism evaluators really, really, really use, that, that two-year line. And a lot of times parents really misrepresent a child's skills when they're talking about pretend play because you'll ask a parent, you know, how does he play? Is he pretending? And a parent will say yes because the kid may be, you know, laying on the floor on his belly, rolling a Thomas train back and forth, and the parent thinks that there's, you know, this beautiful imaginative play going on and that their child is thinking about all these different things, and we don't know that he's not until he can really tell us <laughs> what's going on. But at the same time, that repetitive movement that he's probably doing, you know, rolling it back and forth, that doesn't really constitute pretending. And sometimes parents don't understand that. Or they'll think that something like building with blocks or um, let's say even playing with pots and pans, unless we really see that they're, that it's beyond constructive play or putting things together, it's beyond just exploratory play or just kind of checking stuff out. Unless we really see that children are putting things together and, again, that reenacting familiar scenarios from their daily routines, that's the big thing. When you think, oh, my goodness, he's pretending that he's um, shaving or, you know, he, he's maybe in front of a mirror and really rubbing his face. And I've seen children even as young as, you know, uh, two and a half doing that kind of thing, and a, a lot of times moms just instantly know, oh, he, he's, he's copying his daddy. He sees his daddy do that every day. So you have to really, really look at context there. But, again, don't overestimate a kid's skills in this area because when we overestimate what a kid is really doing, we're missing really valuable information. And a lot of times, oh, gosh, this happens all the time in early intervention. We give kids credit for things that they can't do, and then we start working at a level that's too high for them, and then we wonder why they don't make any progress. And it's because at the beginning we gave them, uh, we put them, you know, six months to a year beyond where they were developmentally. So it's like trying to teach a kid who's in middle school to do algebra. Developmentally, they're just not there yet. You've got to cover that ground. You've got to teach that high, those higher-level skills to get them to the point that they are ready to do that. And so that's why lots of times, again, we don't make progress in therapy with a kid because we've started, we, we think that he can do things that he can't, and then we get really, really frustrated because we think, why isn't he making more progress here? Why isn't this happening sooner? It's because we have not met him where he is. We haven't backed up to the point and haven't really accurately assessed what's going on. And this happens with play a lot. But let me just caution 
you as therapists to really, really, when you're talking with parents about play skills, and certainly parents know their children better than we ever will, and they're with them all the time, but at the same time, you have to really, really ask specific questions and do a lot of keen observation on your own where you are really looking at what a kid is doing. And so if you're talking about pretend play with the mom and she says, oh, yeah, he pretends great, don't just stop there. Say, tell me about it. What does it look like when he's pretending? And better yet, say, hey, let's get some of that out. I, I want to see that. I want to see what's going on for myself here. And you can, you can tell if that kid is symbolic. And that's why play is so important because – Play is where we really can read into what's going on in a child's mind. And we know, is he able to use an object to represent another object? Is he able to take a stick and stir it like it's a spoon? You know, that's being symbolic. That's what pretending is. And that's what language is, too. And we've talked a lot about this on previous shows. And so I'm not going to repeat myself again, <laughs> about that sort of thing. But that's how play and language are really, really tied together. And if you need more information about that, look at teachmetotalk.com. I wrote an article, oh gosh, in the last couple of months about pretend play and how important that is and how it really is connected to telling us that a child has the cognitive uh, foundations for language development. And so take a look at that so that you can really um, solidify that information in your own mind and so you really can understand what's pretending versus a lower level of play. You know, we talked about constructive play and exploratory play and just those sensory kind of based play things and really separate that out from pretending and, and, and just know children with autism have lots of difficulty learning pretend play because uh, that symbolism isn't always there and they um, have some difficulty with that, particularly in that toddlerhood age range. All right, let's move on to the fifth characteristic that would differentiate ASD from another uh, kind of language delay. So this next one is really important too, and I just talk about it a lot, but it's imitation. Kids who don't copy other people's actions or body movement. So this could be something like waving, you know, how we work on waving with babies when they're around that, you know, getting toward that first birthday. That's usually when children are waving at about 12 months and pointing like we talked about before, certainly by 15 months. And so when we have kids who aren't imitating gestures like that, who aren't trying to blow kisses and shake their heads yes and no, um, and pointing like we've already talked about. So when we're not seeing those kinds of really common body movements that we use communicatively, they're not trying to clap when you're playing patty cake with them. Uh, even copying actions like I mentioned before, that higher level one, like a kid might pretend that he's shaving. Let's back it on up. A kid might pretend that they are cleaning, so washing. They don't, you know, that's what we as moms and dads do. However, <laughs> when a kid, you know, at the end of feeding them or at the end of a meal, you know, we're washing off the high chair tray or the table, and that's one of the first pretending things that lots of kids try to do in that 16 to 18 month range is that they uh, take that any kind of rag or napkin or paper towel, and I have a cute little video that I show in uh, my courses that I teach live from a speech pathologist who sent me a video of her 15-month-old daughter who took a little piece of a toy of a Melissa and Doug picnic set, and it was just a little red and white uh, checkered piece of material that was supposed to resemble a tablecloth from the little picnic set, and she took it, and she was walking around dusting. And so she had seen her mom do that routinely in their everyday life at home and so that that's an early pretend skill she's pretending she's doing those little housework activities so when we don't and, and certainly this also applies not only to gestures or body movements or actions but sounds and words so when we don't see a kid trying to copy what you say so that you are saying mama and they're saying mama when we don't see that by 
16, certainly by 18 months, that's a big red flag. And kids with autism have tons of trouble with imitation. And again, I could talk on and on and on and on about imitation and why children with autism don't do it. Kids with autism have difficulty with social referencing, meaning difficulty noticing another person or um, really paying attention to what another person is doing. They also neurologically, and this is a little bit technical for this podcast audience comprised of both therapists and parents, but the mirror neurons in their little brains are different. And mirror neurons, again, are what cause a person to imitate or copy or repeat what we see someone else do and adults even do this subconsciously when you are talking with someone and they are shaking their heads up and down oftentimes as adults we do the same thing you know we're going to copy what we see that other person doing and and it's something you don't even think about it's involuntary or let's say that uh, you're talking with someone and you just you start to use their own uh, body language. So they're, you know, that's sort of what we're talking about with the nodding. But let's just say they look really, really relaxed. And let's say that you are more of a high-key person <laughs> or, you know, amped up a little bit more anxious or nervous or on guard. And you're talking to somebody who's relaxed. So that might make you a little bit more laid back too. So you might lean back in your chair a little more or, or uncross your legs. or And, again, that's due to mirror neurons. We copy what we see someone else do that we're interacting with and that's a neurological difference that kids with autism and again that's wired in they're not purposefully saying I will not copy my mother no matter what I will not imitate my dad's uh, words no matter what they're not doing that purposefully you know this is reflexive it's it's something that you know just they're automatically not imitating which is so different from kids who are typically developing because you know even in that nine to 12 month period and certainly from 12 to 18 months imitating is something that typically developing kids do all the time and here's the kicker kids just with straight expressive language delays are trying to imitate too now that it may not be verbally but they are copying lots of gestures so they don't have they they have waved on time they're pointing they're using all of those other little gestures they're giving five they're um, shaking their heads like we've already talked about, some of those other gestures. They're doing that. It's just that the talking piece isn't in place yet. Uh, and again, let me say, kids with motor planning difficulties or apraxia may have more difficulty with imitation too because just that planning and execution of getting their mouths and even their little hands to do what they purposefully want them to do is hard. I mean, that's the the crux of motor planning problems. And so you, again, you could have a kid with another kind of language or speech disorder who's not imitating, but they also, they may not have any difficulty with the other things that we've talked about. And I hope that that makes sense to you. Um, and this isn't just, you know, this particular list, when a kid has difficulty with all of these seven things, you know, that certainly would point to autism, but children may with other kinds of developmental language delays or disorders may also have some difficulty with some of these things but not all of them and remember what we're doing right now the purpose of this list is just to really look and, and focus in on which kids are more at risk for autism um, even among our kids who are you know all of our kids that we're talking about that are are late talkers so imitation is a big big piece here and I, I've just devoted <laughs> so much time to teaching about imitation. If you uh, really have a kid who's struggling with that and you think, gosh, I need a way to really, you know, get him to imitate words, but first I have to get him to imitate sounds, and then before that I have to get him to imitate some gestures, and before that I need to get him to imitate some actions. That's a really sequential way to look at imitation. And you get tons of information about that in my book, Building Verbal Imitation uh, Skills and Toddlers. Or if you're a therapist, get your hands on a copy of my course, Steps to Building Verbal Imitation and Toddlers, because it walks through the importance of imitation and really 
uh, hones in on each of those little phases. And so not only from a diagnostic perspective from, you know, gosh, is this problematic because he's not doing it, but from an intervention perspective, meaning this is how you teach it. This, these are the things that we would do when a kid is not imitating to move him toward that. All right, let's move on to the sixth characteristic that would differentiate autism from another kind of language uh, delay here, and it's nonverbal communication. And we've already talked about this a little bit when we were talking about kids who don't point or show. And, and certainly this is part of it. So a child who's not using a lot of gestures that we've talked about a lot, but it also includes kids who don't understand a lot of those gestures. And kids who, um, so, and we've talked about this, you know, the kids who aren't following your point, or let's say that a kid, let's say that you are really angry. Um, you are really upset with your child's behavior, and so you are giving him a really stern facial expression that he doesn't notice. He doesn't get that you are really upset with what he's doing. And so, you know, that would be a kid who does not understand nonverbal communication. Now, you know, sometimes we think about it as, oh, well, he's not understanding the words you're using, like stop or no, no, no. But sometimes it's even more basic than that. He doesn't get your nonverbal, your body language. He doesn't get that part of it as well. And kids with autism have a lot of difficulty with that. Um, they also have difficulty using that kind of nonverbal communication. So they may have a really flat affect. And so what does that mean? That means a kid who's kind of expressionless a lot of the time or a kid who doesn't seem to get, doesn't seem to really notice a lot of things and there's not a lot of variability to uh, his reactions and his expressions. You know, something funny may have happened and if he's not, you know, if it's not something that he really, really notices, you may get no reaction out of him. That's why when you are, as a therapist, when you were doing your best to play a game like peekaboo and a kid just doesn't seem to care, <laughs> that's a flat affect. It's probably a cognitive delay, too. He's not really processing what you're doing, but a lot of times it's it's the affect piece. It's, he, it's just not there. And so a lot of times parents, too, will misinterpret that. They'll think, oh, I'm just not very funny. I need to be, you know, a comedian here before I can get him to really notice me or respond to me or have a different kind of facial expression. And it's not you. It's that the child is wired differently. And, again, kids with autism really, really struggle with this. And we talked about the facial expression piece. We've talked about the gesture piece. But it could even just be body language. They just don't use their little bodies in a way to convey many messages at all. I mean, it could be the only thing that they really consistently do, those kinds of things would be things that they did earlier in infancy, cry, scream, uh, whine, those kinds of things. And if it's not really directed toward anybody, again, it's at that earlier developmental phase where they're using those communicative uh, behaviors, but it again, it's up to the adult. The adult is doing all of the heavy lifting communicatively, so to speak, and the adult has to interpret what's going on. Oh, he's crying, and it's in the same way, you know, at, at when he's 26 months, it's when he was two weeks old that the adult is having to really um, tune in and think what could be the problem here what what's going on here and you have to really you know use your investigative skills even for a child who again should be to the point where at least with their little bodies or their faces even if they're not talking yet they should be able to in some way guide you <laughs> toward what what's going on. They should have some communicative intent there. And so nonverbal communication is a really big problem with kids with autism. And it's one of the big criteria that we use when we're looking at giving that official diagnosis. So look at that nonverbal communication. And again, sometimes we think about expressively, you know, kids who are not talking, we use gestures first. And we may still think about, oh, gosh, this is just a language delay when a kid isn't using gestures. But more often than not, it's beyond that. And that's what this, again, what we're doing with this list. All right, the last characteristic here of our seven characteristics that differentiate 
kids with autism from other kinds of developmental language delays and disorders would be looking at their language development as a whole. And again, we're not talking about just talking. We're also looking at the comprehension piece. And so a lot of times with late talkers, parents really dramatically overestimate what their children understand. And I've done lots and lots of teaching and talking about that. And if you've listened to this show for any length of time at all, You've heard me say that I, I so believe that receptive language delays or the comprehension problems, problems really understanding what words mean, that's the most overlooked delayed or overlooked delay in early intervention. And so many kids who are originally referred for late talking or speech delay or whatever the doctor or the parent happens to call it, parents don't realize it's not just that he can't say words, but he doesn't really understand a lot of words either or a lot of language. So look at that piece. Look at their language development. And here's another interesting kicker about a lot of kids with autism, especially higher functioning autism. If you are assessing a kid and his expressive language scores are higher than his receptive language scores, you should always have, you know, bells and whistles going off in your head as a therapist with, oh, my goodness, this could be autism, because that's a really uncommon profile. Typically developing toddlers always understand more than they can say. So when we have a child with autism who says more than he can understand, can you see that that's how, how atypical that is? And so really, really look at that. And, again, we, we typically kind of with language development and we think about the delay part, but we don't think about the things that could be, um, as I, the word I used before was atypical, but really what we're talking about here is a disorder. And let's, let's kind of, I've done this on previous shows, but let's review this here too if you're new to the podcast. And if you are a therapist, you need to really be explaining the difference between a delay and a disorder to parents. You know, delay means there's a problem with time so that things are coming in as expected with the child, but it's just slower than we would anticipate. So let's say the kid is two, but all of his skills are lining up very sequentially and in order, but he's only gotten to the 12 or 15-month level. But there's nothing really atypical about it. A disorder really encompasses children who have things that are so different from what we expect. And remember that language develops as, as a whole, typical language development. It may not be at the exact same time that a skill would, would emerge for every single child. <coughs> Excuse me. But the pattern is there. And so the pattern doesn't differentiate or doesn't deviate. And so looking at language development here, this also tells us with a kid, things that are so atypical. So let's say that a kid isn't really talking very much at all, except that he can count to 10 in three different languages, but that's all he can do. Okay, that's atypical. That's an atypical difference with language development, and that would lead you to look at something beyond language delay. And kids with autism will have lots of their little splinter skills, or they may be um, echolalic, like I said about the counting. They've heard someone do it a couple of times or they've watched a show over and over and over and over, and they've learned that. And you hear them count to 10, you know, like I said, in three different languages, but they can't ask for what they need, or they don't, like we said before, they don't respond to directions or respond to their names. And so that would lead you to say, gosh, there's something so different about their language development. This is not a delay. This is something beyond that. This is atypical. And so that would be a disorder. Autism is a disorder. It's not just a delay. And so we have to really talk to parents about that. And that's a hard conversation to have as a therapist. You know, we don't want to go in and just completely shoot a parent's um, hopes down. You know, when they're telling you things like, you know, he can't talk and I'm worried about how he 
he doesn't really follow a lot of directions, but here's what he can do. He can sing this song. Listen to this. And so it's so hard as a therapist to say, that's echolalia, and that's associated with autism, and that's not a good thing, and you have thought this is great, but let me come in here and destroy every strength that you ever thought about your child. We do not need to do that. (laughs) We need to be super gentle and very understanding and sympathetic and empathetic when we are talking with parents about these things. And truth be told, that is a strength. It is a strength that their child has held on to that uh, ability, that song or that um, counting or saying the ABCs or memorizing a whole book. I mean, that, that is a strength. That's a memory strength, and we need to emphasize it. But it's separate from language, and it's separate from typical development. And, again, we don't squash a parent's <laughs> um, pride in their child's skills and in what they've been able to teach their kid to do because we need that. We need for parents to be on board, and we need for parents to know that they can teach their children um, words and can teach their children <laughs> information. We need them to believe in that, but at the same time, we need them to know what's different about that or what what makes that a little bit um, what we're a little bit cautious with about that. And we also need to talk a lot about splinter skills and a lot about patterns of development. And you know, gosh, it is great that she quotes brown bear from cover to cover but do you see how she's not really understanding what those words mean and how you know she's able to quote this word in the context of this book yet when we ask her when we say you know go find the bear where is the bear and she's not able to do it and so we point out those things to parents and say you know there's there's a disconnect here with her language you know she's able to say it but she doesn't really understand it and that's what's the concern here You've got to really be careful as you do it. You've got to walk that line. You know, you don't want to hurt a parent's feelings or be insulting or, again, shatter their hopes and dreams. But you do have to let parents know, you know, this is not what we would expect to see in a child. And you can say, yes, that's a fantastic zany brainy skill, and I'm very, very proud of him, and that is a strength. But here's how it looks. To me, and here's how this differs from a child with typically developing language, or like we're talking about today, a child with another kind of language delay. And so that's where the discussion about delay versus disorder can be really, really helpful for some parents for them to really kind of tease out what's going on. There's a nice discussion about that in my book, Teach Me to Talk, the Therapy Manual. So if you have that book already, <laughs> Go back and look at that if you're thinking, gosh, I'm not, I don't really have that conversation with parents very much. I'm not sure that I know how to explain splinter skills in a way that parents really get that, yes, this is something to show off and be proud of and brag about, but at the same time, it's different from what we would t- expect with typical language development or either with, even from other kids with language delays. So remember, those were the seven things, eye contact and eye gaze, orienting to One's name, pointing to or showing objects of interest, no pretend play, very little imitation, nonverbal communication is uh, missing or limited, meaning that they don't use it or understand it when another person is communicating with them nonverbally, and certainly looking at language development. Are those patterns consistent with delay versus disorder? Do they have as their comprehension? And comprehension is just the biggest difference here. A kid is not just a late talker if he doesn't understand language as well as other children his or her own age. And let's just say kids should be following familiar directions during daily routines by 18 months. So if you have a two-year-old who's really, really struggling to follow directions, again, that, that doesn't always mean autism. Kids can certainly have receptive language delays without being on the spectrum. But you really, really got to start looking at a kid with apraxia as his sole diagnosis will be able to follow directions. You know, they're, they're, and those kinds of kids who already have another kind of speech diagnosis that, that just account for the expressive piece and yet they still have some 
some other receptive language things going on too, that's going to lead you to believe apraxia is that kid, part of that kid's problem. It's not the kid's only problem. And remember how closely um, autism and apraxia, uh, a study that I sent out in the uh, email that I sent out yesterday really highlighted 63% of kids with autism have apraxia and I think it I think it was 36% of kids in the study with apraxia went on to be diagnosed with autism kind of after the fact so I want you to be sure that you're looking at that information and thinking about that information critically as a therapist and even though you may have an opinion about a kid at the beginning that you know based on what his parents say about him this is just an expressive language problem I got an email from a therapist today who said the parent says he doesn't have a comprehension problem but it didn't appear to me that he understood much of anything. <laughs> Go with your gut there. And again, parents know their kids better than we do, but they don't understand language development like we do. So you've got to really, really, again, get in there and tease those differences out and be sure that you understand the difference well enough to explain it to a parent <laughs> so that you don't trip all over yourself when you're trying to say something's off here. You know, you've got to be able to explain what it is. All right, I hope the show helped you and it's given you a list to get you going. And remember, as a parent, don't panic if you're hearing this information and thinking, ah, my kid has a lot of these. It doesn't necessarily mean autism, but we certainly do want to be aware that in most cases, uh, kids who are struggling with these kinds of things have other issues going on uh, beyond late talking. All right, that's it for today. Hope you learned some new stuff. Join me next week for a new show. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.